today, I want to encourage you to look along with me at 1 Samuel chapter 2. In just a moment, I'll continue the reading which John began for us earlier. If you don't have your own Bibles, you can, of course, follow along in the bulletin. You'll find the text in uh, the bulletin. Or if you'd prefer, you can use one of those blue Bibles that is in front of you, and you'll find our text today on page 226. So I'm going to be picking up the reading this morning at verse 22, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Uh, Brace yourselves. Uh, This is a hard portion of the word of God. It's not the easiest portion to consider. It's not the easiest portion to read or to hear read for us. There are a lot of difficult questions that arise from this portion of God's scripture. It is his holy, infallible, and inerrant word that we hear this morning, so give your attention to it, beginning at verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. I gave to, your, to the house of your father all of my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever, but now, the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and shall and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priests' place, that I may eat a morsel of bread. Let's pray. Lord, these are hard words, and they are ancient words, and they describe an ancient time. We pray that as we, your people, living in this day, in this age, in the 21st century, as we consider these things, we pray that you would help us to understand not only what was taking place then and there, 
but also how you would have us to live our lives accordingly. We who now live in the new covenant, we who know of the great high priest Jesus Christ, teach us what we are to learn effectively from these words. Soften our hearts and let us hear it the way you would have us to hear it today. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. This is, it seems to me, a scary text. It is unsettling. It is a disturbance of the peace. Now, if you weren't here last week, and you're, you're picking it up this week, sorry about that, last week was a really wonderful text. It was celebratory. It was rejoicing as we saw Hannah bring, in accordance with the vow that she had made, Samuel to the temple where God had established here at Shiloh, kind of a, I'm going to use the word, by the way, temple off and on in this. It's not the actual temple. It's kind of like a precursor to the temple established there at Shiloh. But where Samuel is brought to that place and then Hannah sings her song of worship and praise. It is celebratory and it is wonderful. But this week, and frankly, not only in this chapter, but for the next two chapters as well, in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, we have this sharp contrast that is set up between, and, and initially we can see it this way, although it'll shrink down to size as the passage moves along, we can see it as a distinction set up, a contrast between Elkanah, Hannah, and Samuel on the one hand, and on the other side, of course, Eli and his sons who are there. They are respectively strong and weak links in the kingdom of God, in the spiritual chain of God's people. The troubling thing for us as we look at a passage like this, and I recognize there's a number of troubling things that are here and set before us in this text, is that this is taking place within the household of God. We're not talking about right now enemies outside the household of God, uh, neighboring countries who are seeking to wage war against Israel. That's bad. Uh, and, and if I could borrow a phrase from later in the book that uh, you, you are familiar with, we're not talking here in this chapter about any uncircumcised Philistines who are wreaking havoc on the people of God or who are seeking to destroy them. That's bad, but this is different. And it's worse because we're talking about something now that is inside the household of God, inside the people of God. And in fact, we're talking about something that deals not only with average people, but with the priests, with the people that God has established to shepherd, to watch over, to guide his people in the ways of the Lord. And I want to tell you something. I think we can say, if you know the rest of this story, this is not only bad, the section that I've read for us, but it gets, I don't know if I can say if it gets worse, but it certainly gets more troubling if you know the story in and of itself. Let me just read why. I'm going to skip over to 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, and I'm going to read the first three verses for you, and you're going to hear not about Eli's troubled sons, but you're going to hear about Samuel's troubled sons. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes, and they perverted justice. Now perhaps, perhaps we can, in our minds, make sense of Hophni and Phinehas. Perhaps we can say, listen, we get how they turned out the way they turned out because we understand something about Eli. And Eli is not exactly the picture of a faithful and wonderful father that we get in Scripture. But, but then we read of Joel and Abijah and their sins and it's troubling to us. It's confusing to us. We kind of wonder about the promises of the covenant and the, the continuity of the seed of God, the continuity of faithfulness. How does this take place? What are we supposed to understand from this? 
how does the faith go or not go from generation to generation? It's troubling on the micro level. And when I say the micro level, what I mean is it's troubling for us, as it would have been troubling for them, on the personal, on the familial level when we think about this. In addition to that, it's troubling on the macro level because in reality, these are religious and these are national is issues for Israel. They are personal and small, but they also exist on a bigger scale as well. And so it is a scary passage. It is a scary passage or should be a scary passage for any of you who are parents. For any of you who are grandparents, this is a terrifying passage. It should be a scary passage for any of us who are the children of believers. Okay, so if you are here today and you are a child of a believer, whatever your age, okay, Hophni and Phinehas are older here. They're not, they're not young little tykes at this point. This should be a scary passage. And I'll tell you one other thing. This is a scary passage for church leaders. I think it's a scary passage for pastors in particular. It scares me to read this passage. I'm saying there, there but for the grace of God. So here's what I want to do today. Actually, uh, as I look at this text, the issues that are contained in it are so complex that we're going to actually need to take it over the course of two weeks. So uh, please come back next week because uh, I can't do all of this sermon today. I can't address all of the questions that are in this text in one sermon. Uh, there's, there are more questions than we'll get to today, and uh, teaser, there's more hope than I'm going to be able to get to today. So part one of two is what we're doing today. But what I want to do today is I want to explore in particular this contrast that is set up for us between these two families and try and see how the text explains this how it unfolds, and we'll look at a couple of the difficult questions that are embedded in the text as a result of it. There's questions here, for example, of responsibility. Who's responsible for what? There's questions here of the nature of sin and what's being said about some kinds of sin and other kinds of sin. So those are some of the tough things that we will look at today. Now, as we proceed in this passage, and just this, this one sentence before I go into the contrast between these two, I want you to remember what I have said in the first two sermons thus far from Samuel, and that is this. God is up to something big, something grand and something significant. A, a real change is taking place in Israel at this moment. God is preparing the way. He's making the path. He's clearing the decks, if you will, for the monarchy, for the coming of the king. And I've tried to point this out in the, the corresponding readings that we've been doing and in the preaching as well. But if you have in your mind, perhaps we're more familiar with the stories of John the Baptist and Jesus than we are with these stories in particular. But if you have that in mind, Samuel is functioning in the same kind of way that John the Baptist is, preparing the way. And preparing the way means establishing someone like Samuel who can prepare the people by declaring the word, a prophet to declare the word, to declare the king who is coming. But it also means clearing a way. Clearing a way, in this case, the priests who are acting unfaithfully, who are acting unfaithfully towards God and towards the people of God. So remember that God is up to something big, even as we look at these smaller families and what does it work here. So let's consider the contrast here. And the contrast that we're looking at today is no less than the contrast between good and evil. We can look at it that simply. Those words, good and evil, are embedded in this text. And we see it structured to bring that out as clearly as we can. The narrative, the story that is set before us, before us is, is kind of put before us as if we were at a tennis match. Now, when you're watching tennis on TV, you don't need to turn your head back and forth, but if you watch the crowd, then you know if, if you're actually in a stadium, then you have to go back and forth between the ball going to either side. 
And that's exactly how our narrative is structured for us today, both in this chapter and then in the next chapter as well, in chapter 3. You keep looking back and forth between Samuel and Elkanah and Hannah on the one side, and then you're turning immediately to Eli and his sons. And the text goes back and forth and back and forth to highlight the contrast between good and evil, between faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And it's written in order to do just that. It's a little bit jarring to preach that way back and forth, so I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to look at one side, and then we'll turn and we'll look at the other side, but recognize that we're intentionally supposed to see this contrast. The, the positive side, if you will, the good side, it's, it's highlighted for us in verse 11, and then in verses 18 through 21, and then in verse 26 of the text that is before us today. Samuel, having been dedicated to the Lord, ministers there. And if you look at each one of these sections, he ministers in verse 11 to the Lord, in verse 18 before the Lord, and in verse 26 in finding favor with the Lord. We are to understand that Samuel, even as a relatively young lad, a young child of the covenant, is serving in a faithful and responsible way according to how God has worked in his life. And I, 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 I took the t- it, verse 26 that is here. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Should sound very familiar to us. It's the verses that I put on the front of your bulletin because they're the same phrases that are used to describe, of course, John the Baptist and then our Lord himself. So this is the positive side of things. And, and what we're being shown is Samuel's dedication. Okay? Samuel was dedicated by Hannah, by uh, uh, Elkanah, to serve at the house of the Lord. And he reveals in the way that he's doing it that that's not just something that belonged to his parents, but instead it's something that was embraced by him even at a very young age. And so he was dedicated in his service to God at the house of God. The parental blessing is also incredibly evident to us in that section in 18 through 21, where we read that Elkanah and Hannah continue this great habit that they've seen, that we've seen already, of them regularly, annually visiting this temple at Shiloh, coming up to this place. And it's not hard for us to imagine, or I think to put ourselves a little bit in their position, particularly in Hannah's position. On the one hand, she's delighted. Samuel is the child that she had prayed for, uh, that she had vowed, that she had seen God uh, use to, to end her barrenness. And she's delighted then in his birth, in him, in the early years that she had with him. But one can imagine that it's not too easy to leave your firstborn off to be raised at the temple. And you can imagine her over the course of a year as she prepares each year this linen ephod uh, that we read about, thinking about Samuel, smiling on the one hand, maybe a tear on the other, as she wants to bring to him, you know, a little bit bigger of an ephod, you know, growing into this ephod, growing into the next one. And so she cares for him, and this family blessing is evident. In and of itself, it's a tender mercy that she shows toward her child, and it's an anticipation as well. It's a kind of foreshadowing of what his role is in the household of God. And we see also how God continued to bless this children with more family. This is what we talked about last week. So she prays the Lord gives her a son only for her to give the son back to the Lord And then the Lord says, uh, I'm going to multiply what you've given. By the way, here are more sons and more daughters to fill up your quiver. And so while no doubt uh, she pined for her firstborn son who was serving at the temple, Hannah had her hands full. Hannah had her hands full with children to take care of and to provide for at home as well. It is a tremendous blessing that we see here. 
God continued to give her children. And with that line, Hannah fades from the pages of Scripture. That's it. That's the last thing that we read. The Lord continued to visit her, bless her, and that's it. We hear a little bit more of Elkanah. Uh, He's referenced in a few genealogies, but this is it for Hannah. That's the last line that we read about. It's a beautiful story. It is a good story. When we read that line, in he's grown in favor with the Lord. That's in good. He's in good standing with the Lord. It's a good thing that we're seeing presented in this family. So that's the positive side of that. This is the good story. And now it's set up in contrast to, and because the bulk of the text is here, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. It's in contrast to Eli and his worthless sons. Uh, By the way, a little aside, your Bibles may have a little footnote uh, where it says worthless, and it it goes down and says sons of Belial. Uh, This is an idiom. We're not really familiar with all of the aspects of this idiom. Uh, It's thought that perhaps this was like a Canaanite goddess of the underworld. Um, And it's actually what Ruth says as well when Eli sees her praying and he thinks, Uh, that she's drunk, she says, no, 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 don't consider me to be a worthless woman. What she says actually literally is, don't consider me to be a daughter of Belial. Uh, And so it's paralleled here. She's not a daughter of Belial. They are, in fact, sons of Belial. It's it's an idiom that means worthless, useless, um, or worse, evil uh, as well. But the wickedness of these two sons is described in two sections that are before us, in verses 12 through 17, and then verse 22 as well. In the first case, we should remember, and this this is looking at this first section here, 12 through 17, that the law of God made provision for the support of the priesthood. Now, if you are interested in finding out the details of that and understanding exactly what's being said here and how they were disobeying the law of God, just follow the references that are probably in your Bible, the cross-references there, and they will take you to the appropriate places in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that describe specifically what the laws were for the provision of the priesthood and then clearly how those things were being violated here. The point in our text, made clearly enough, is the abuse of that privilege. Uh, This... uh, Can I say this? This potluck is not so much a potluck that's going on anymore. Uh, It's a a predetermined, I want the best pieces of everything for myself, uh, regardless of what the law says. I'm going to get it, and I'm not going to just stick the fork in at any particular point. I'm going to get the three-pronged fork, and I'm going to look in, and I'm going to get the best piece that I can possibly find in here. And so this is blatantly, systematically abusing the system, fattening themselves at the expense of those whom they were called to serve. Can we say that this is a persistent problem in every age of the church, ours not excluded? If we went to, and we're not going to turn to these places right now, but if we went to Ezekiel, we would see a condemnation of the shepherds of Israel for this same kind of thing, fattening themselves while not feeding the sheep. We would see the same condemnation leveled in the letter of Jude in the New Testament. And essentially, these are some of the last words that Jesus is saying to Peter, who would be a shepherd, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Well, these men quite clearly are feeding themselves and starving the people of God. Now, stealing theft is wrong for everyone. Stealing and abusing your position as a priest or as a church leader is worse. Okay, can, can you appreciate this? This is a conversation that I end up having with many of you here. Stealing for all is wrong. Stealing as a priest from the offerings that have been given to the Lord is worse. Verse 17, thus the sin of the young men was very great. Not just great 
it's intensified great. It is a very great sin in the sight of the Lord for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. The second description of sin is found in verse 22. It is sexual sin within the ministry. Now, whatever form of sexual sin, adultery, fornication, is wrong for all. Okay? It's wrong for everyone. But as one in authority in the church, it is compounded. It is, to state it very clearly, worse because it is an abuse of position. It is an abuse of God-given power and authority in a particular place where you should be able to find mercy, and instead what you find there is abuse. It is worse. It is evil, and that's what what is confirmed in the things that people are saying and the things that Eli says, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. Everybody is talking about how evil you are. Now at root, we could say this is explained to us in verse 12. They did not know the Lord. They didn't know the Lord. Now, they knew of the Lord, right? They, they, they knew things about God. They knew various practices, and they were around the temple of God. But it says they did not know the Lord. They covenantally did not know the Lord, were not in intimate fellowship and relationship with the Lord. Now, turn one page if you've got your Bibles with you. Open. Turn one page. I want to read one section where this is being recapped for us in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Let me just read that. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever because, uh, for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Those are devastating words. This idea here, another description of their sin. His sons were blaspheming God. Now that may be one of two things. It may be an additional sin uh, from the ones that we've just read about that were described for us in chapter 2. Or it may be a way of recapitulating, of summarizing these things. That's in net, in total, in sum, what they were doing. By their actions, they were blaspheming God. Eli, then, when he, in our section, is, is chastising them, at least chastising them verbally, characterizes their sin as a sin against the Lord. Did you catch that? In verse 25, here's what Eli says. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Now, that's a little bit confusing to us, and it's confusing to us for two reasons when we read it. First of all, it's confusing to us because clearly their sin was against other people. Right? There, there were other people involved here in the adultery or fornication that we read about in verse 22. Obviously, that involves other people. And in stealing the portions, that involves other people as well. So clearly, their sin is against other people. And the other thing that is confusing for us is that biblically, we want to recognize the reality that all sin is ultimately against God. Right? All sin is ultimately against God. And so we read this phrase from Eli, and we're a little bit puzzled about what's being spoken of here, a sin against the Lord as opposed to a sin against a person. To untangle this, and I think we need to untangle it, we can say two things. First, this. The Bible speaks of a distinction between sins that are committed unintentionally, that is to say sins that are committed without knowledge, they are a mistake 
you did them and you were unaware of them. Uh, it, it happened in a moment and you were unaware of what was taking place. You can read about this in Numbers 15. I don't want to turn to the text right now because it gets very complicated very quickly, but you can read about it later if you'd like to in Numbers 15. So that's one type of sins, unintentional sins, and unintentional sins are contrasted with another type of sin that is described. And the other type of sin is, literally, if we translated it, it is high-handed sin, or what we might call presumptuous sin, if we were to use an English word from Psalm 19, a presumptuous sin, which is to say it's deliberate, it's done with full knowledge, it's done systematically, persistently, it is intentional. It is intentional, and it's done arrogantly. And Numbers says that sins like that are particularly, uniquely, a reviling of the Lord. Okay? It's one thing to sin unintentionally. It is another thing to sin high-handedly. In a unique and different way, they are a reviling of the Lord himself. They are dangerous, and they are liable to a more severe judgment than the unintentional sin. In addition to that, a distinction is made in Scripture in terms of the position, the circumstance, the knowledge, the gifting of the person who is committing a sin. Therefore, Jesus can speak to hypocritical scribes and say to them and of them that they will receive what? Greater condemnation. Condemnation, yes, but greater condemnation. Why? Why greater for them? Because of the position that they held. Because of the familiarity that they had with the things of God, with the ways of God, with the house of God, with the law of God, they're liable to greater condemnation than are others. And that is the case with these two sons. To put it in the terrifying words of Hebrews 6, Hophni and Phinehas partook of some measure of enlightenment. They tasted quite literally, of the heavenly gift. They shared a measure of the spirit and tasted of the goodness of the world to come. And then, from the position at which God had stationed them and set them, they systematically, willfully, persistently rejected it. They showed contempt for the things of God. And the question becomes, who mediates for somebody like that? When the priests have fallen into this sin, who mediates at that point for them and this high-handed sin? Which brings us to Eli, because Eli is not left off the hook in this passage. On the micro level, we can describe Eli's sin as the failure of a father to discipline his children. That's the failure that he has. On a macro level, Eli had the authority of a priest or of a judge. He had responsibility within the nation, within the household of God, to enforce the removal of his sons. His failure thus wasn't only a personal failure, failure of a dad. It was a national disgrace and failure as well. He had authority and he had responsibility for these men on both levels, as dad and as priest and judge in Israel. When we do hear of Eli confronting his sons, which we hear of then in verse 22 in that following sections, it's too little too late to make any difference. He had turned a blind eye to their sins 
for too long. Verse 22, now Eli was very old. Very old when he tries to get some words in that maybe will make a difference, he thinks, in the behavior of his sons. And his words fall to the ground. They're blown away by the wind. They're gobbled up by hungry birds. Are you listening, parents? Are you listening? If you think you can wait to start disciplining your children until they're older, until they can understand more, oh, that is a sad strategy doomed to failure. If you think now that they're in high school, ha, I'm going to lay down the law, too late. Too late. Try repentance your own before trying to enforce it on your kids because it's way too late at that point. Start early and taper off early. Start early, taper off early. That's a lesson that's embedded in this text that is here. So what happened here? How did this take place? How did this happen to Eli? Eli is a man of the house of Aaron. He's blessed, he's chosen. When, when the prophet comes and starts to rehearse for him what God had done, what God had done for Aaron, how he had chosen Aaron, how the, pro how the promises had been made to Aaron's household forever, the priesthood that wouldn't depart from the household. All of this choosing, all of these blessings, all of the promises that were given to them. How did we arrive at such an unhappy point? In light of all of those things, how did he get here? to these devastating curses that are being leveled against this family. Well, two reasons are given for it. In verse 29, a reason is given. And that is because Eli honored his children above the Lord. The word for honored there is the word that we often use. It's, it's the word glory, the word that we use for glory. And it has, as we've talked about before in a variety of contexts, it has the meaning of weightiness, of heaviness. He treated his children with weight as if they were significant, as if they were the heavy thing. After all, children are tangible. You, you can hold them in your lap. You can touch them. Whereas the Lord, he treated lightly. He honored his children above honoring the Lord. He reversed the priority. The command begins with, you shall worship and serve the Lord and the Lord your God only. And what Eli did is he reversed it. And he made an idol out of his family. And he committed idolatry with his family, with the gift of God. Oh, Christian parents, we've got to hear this warning. There was a time in this country where the church, Christian, Christian husbands, Christian wives, we needed to hear that perhaps we were forsaking our children, that we were not paying as much attention to our children as we should have been. We were getting lost in other things, lost in work, lost in service to the church, lost in other ideas, and we weren't paying enough attention to our children. There was a time when that was the error. This is not that time. This is not that time in the church of God. This is the opposite time when many have fallen into the idolatry of your family. Where the kids, the family, is of more weight than the Lord and the things of God. We'll run our kids everywhere. Everywhere. Anywhere they need to go, you'll take them. I mean, you might groan about it, 
but you'll take them wherever they need to go, whatever they want to do, you will do it. You will find a way to make it work. We'll forsake worship, we'll forsake small groups, we'll forsake serving in the house and serving the people of God. We will spend gazillions, quote Forrest Gump, gazillions of dollars on our kids and just give a little bit of an offering to the house of the Lord, to the work of the Lord. Hear the warning. Hear the warning. The Lord would instruct us, even in a passage like this, in ordinate love, ordered love, ordered affections. Him first. Now, that's easy to say. It's, that's an easy slogan, right? I, I know. God first. Got it. But what God means is, me first. He really sincerely means him in every practical, in every way that we can possibly think about it, God first. And then I'm going to throw this one in, though this one isn't in the text quite as much. Well, it's not really in this text. Him first, your spouse second, which is to say your husband or your wife. Your husband or wife second, not kids. So for those of you who have heard yourselves say, the kids are the most important things in my life, put your hand on your mouth. Put it right on your mouth. Don't let that phrase come out of your mouth. They should not be. If so, let it come out of your mouth in confession and repentance before the Lord Almighty. Him first. Your spouse second. That's the one you have oneness with. Your kids third. Your kids third. Check your heart. Check your schedule. Check your checkbook. Check it. For the sake of your kids, don't honor your beloved children above your beloved wife. And don't honor your beloved children and your beloved wife above your beloved Lord. second reason given for Eli's failure and his son's evil is found in the passage that I read from chapter 3. He did not restrain them. The words he spoke, too little, too late. He did not restrain them. He had, even when they were older, priestly authority, political authority to do something about their evil, and he did not do it. He did not restrain them. He Love them too much to discipline them. Which, just to be clear, is unbiblical. He loved them too much to discipline them. It's tragic and it's sad. It's sad for his family and it's sad for the people of God to have priests and a temple that was in that kind of disarray, subject to that kind of abuse. It was awful for everybody. And so instead of fatherly discipline, or can we say it this way just to bring it into our language, ecclesiastical discipline, grounded in love with the goal of shaping, we end up with a severe judgment of God against this family. The judgment is a severance. It's a cutting off of that which was given. They have broken the covenant. And instead of the sacrifice being cut, which is what they did as priests, they will be cut. It's poetic. They are going to be the ones forked out and cut off, taken away from their position. As Hannah sang, this is Hannah's words, the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. Well, that's what's happening here. The Lord knows. The Lord weighs. And as Hannah sings, the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. One family is being killed. The other brought to life. 
A weak link is being removed from the chain and a strong link established. Questions abound, right? Questions abound when you hear this. Questions like who's responsible for this? Who's responsible for all of it? And then throw in Samuel's kids. Who's responsible? Who gets the credit? Who gets the blame for what's going on in a chapter like this? On the one hand, the answer is the Lord. The Lord God Almighty. He is at work accomplishing his sovereign decree. That's what Hannah has sung about. The Lord is doing this. The Lord is bringing down the proud and the mighty, the arrogant, and he's raising up the poor. He's raising up the needy. He's raising up the humble. That's what's happening. The Lord is the one who is doing it. Even Eli will be compelled to say in chapter 3, may the Lord do what seems good to him. But of course, within our chapter itself, you heard the phrase, and I'm sure you went, wait, what? When it was read? For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Why did they not listen to the words of their father? It was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Their sins had already condemned them, and it is the Lord's will that is being worked out. That's the negative side. Now, to come back to the positive side, it was also the will of the Lord to hear the prayer of Hannah, to answer the prayer of Hannah, to open the womb of Hannah, to provide for her Samuel, and then to provide all of those other children as well. God is at work. On the other hand, on the other side, we have faithful parents and children serving the Lord and receiving his blessing. And on the other side, on the, or not on the other side, but next to them, in contrast, we have unfaithful parents and rebellious children who would not listen to the voice of their father. That's pretty simply stated. And they accordingly receive the judgment of God and... They have moved beyond the range of mediation, repentance, and atonement. They're out of the range. The text thus affirms the sovereignty of God and the responsibility that is given to fathers and mothers, to parents, it affirms, likewise, the responsibility that is given to children and says, do not be presumptuous. Your faithfulness is not guaranteed. You will have to seek after the Lord, and you should listen to the voice of your Father. The text affirms the responsibility, likewise, that belongs to church leaders. To act faithfully within the household of God before the Lord who judges the thoughts, who knows, who is the God of knowledge and understands the intentions of the mind, the intentions of the heart as well. It affirms the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of people, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Those are words from the Westminster Confession in the chapter on God's eternal decree. Yes, the perfect will of God is being worked out, and yes, the parenting of Eli, or the lack thereof, and the decisions of Hophni and Phinehas are all part of that perfect will of God. Now, there are lots more questions, and obviously I'm over time, I'm out of time. We'll delve into them next week because they're important to think through as well. But what you've got here, and I understand that this is a sober place to leave us for a week, but the contrast is clear between these two families and not only is the contrast clear between these two families, 
but the contest, the contest for the heart is likewise clear. You know what's happening in 1 Samuel? God is looking for a man after his own heart. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for a man after his own heart. And, and even towards the end of this text, it says, and I will build him a sure house. He, oh, sorry, that's not what I wanted. Right before that. This person, this one that I raise up, shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. God is looking for somebody after his own heart. A contest, as it were. Parents, a contest is, is at work in your heart and is a contest. Anyone is here as a, children of a, a child of a believer, there is a contest in your heart right now. Good or evil. To serve the Lord or to not serve the Lord or to pretend to serve the Lord. So until we get back to this next week, here's what you're going to have to remember. You're going to have to remember Hebrews. You're going to have to remember that there is now a faithful high priest over the household of God. Not these high priests, praise God, but a faithful high priest over the household of God. And hear the words of Hebrews then. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Children of believers in this church, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Lord, we're all convicted by the knowledge that you have of our hearts and of our lives. You, more than we, but even we ourselves, know how far short we have fallen of the standards of your word, of your law. And we pray that you would be merciful to us, Jesus, sympathetic, gracious, high priest. We come to you. You alone are our hope. Deliver us from the penalty and the power of sin. Remember the covenant. Don't cut us off. Don't cut our children off. Remember the promises. Grant grace. Grant strength the Spirit to follow after you. We ask this in your name. Amen.